Hi, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. Today we kick off a new series called Life, Designed by God. Joining us to launch this series is the newly commissioned president and CEO of the Silver Ring Thing, Jason Burt. He will be preaching out of 1 Thessalonians on the message, Living to Please God. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, as Pastor Jamie said, my name is Jason. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. It was about 15 years ago when God moved me from uh, to Pittsburgh. I'm actually a native New England guy. I grew up just outside of Boston. I uh, uh, went to Grove City College. And after graduating, I moved to New Jersey uh, for a little while, for a couple of years. Well, honestly, it was a season in my life where I was at that period kind of walking far from God. And I wasn't sure why, but I knew that God was calling me back to Pittsburgh. I didn't know what for or why, but I knew that was where I kind of had to, to go to get my life figured out, so to speak. And this church, Christ Church at Grove Farm, is the first church I attended when I got back. It's the church that I then committed to and called home for the next several years. My faith became alive in this church. The gospel became real to me in this church. I found community and I found support through this church. In fact, I was baptized as an adult by the late uh, Pastor Dave McKenzie right in the Doty's pool down in Sewickley all through this church just days before I got married. So this church means a lot to me. There's a long history and people who have poured into my life. You know, it's funny though, the first time I walked in, you know, this looked a lot different in here. And the first time I walked in, I saw Dr. John Guest standing up here in white robes, standing like this. And I thought, oh my word, what have I gotten myself into? You know? And the irony of it is that less than an hour from now, I'm going to be standing in white robes over there. So I think God has a sense of humor. And I figured he also wants to keep me a bit humble, kind of quell my pride a little bit. Because, you know, Pittsburgh is one of the only cities I can live in in America where your football team has more Super Bowl rings than my New England Patriots. So, yeah. For now. Only for now. You know, we're catching up. Maybe this year we'll get one more, but we're still catching up. But anyway... Like I said, I believe that, you know, it's, the saying is true. It takes a village to raise a child. And I'm certainly, that, that's case in point with me. There were a lot of people in this church that poured into my life that have, very, have rich history and deep relationships with that I'm very, very thankful for. So the title of my message today is Living to Please God. Now, I think anyone in here who is a Christian, who even like contemplates that God may exist, I think you would say, that's what you want to aspire to do. To please God. I don't think there's anyone who says, hey, I want the author and creator of the whole universe to be displeased with me. I don't think anyone who says, I want God who's sovereign over everything to be frustrated, to be disappointed, maybe even downright disgusted with me. No. I think anyone wants to hear those those famous words at the end of our life which say, well done, good and faithful servant. The question is, how do we get there? Is there a way that we can live our lives that will elicit God's pleasure in us? How do we do that? Well, in our passage today, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Paul starts this whole section, this part where he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order that you may please God, as in fact you are living. Now, let me give you just a, a tiny bit of context to this. See, Paul had traveled with Silas and Timothy to the city of Thessalonica, and they planted a church there. And and Paul was there for a little bit of time, but they ultimately got chased out. They got chased out because of persecution. He hadn't been able to finish the, the instruction and the teaching that they had wanted to do. And so Paul always longed to go back there. 
He said earnestly he was in prayer, hoping that he could go. And he was concerned about them. He was concerned. He hadn't been there a long time. And he was worried. How are they doing in their faith? Are they wavering? Are they steadfast? Where are they? And several times he wanted to go back, but he says that Satan prevented him, blocked his way. So ultimately, Paul sent Timothy back. He said, you got to go check up on them. See how they're doing. When Timothy comes back to Paul, he says, you know what? They're actually doing pretty good. They've stayed consistent. They haven't wavered in their faith. They're steadfast. They're strong. And Paul is very encouraged by this. So it's Timothy's word back to him when Paul then writes this letter. And in this letter to this church, the first half of it, he's kind of, he's just remembering, remembering the time he was with them. He's appreciating them. He's praising them. He's thanking them. But then around verse 4 is when he gets into a little bit of instruction. You see, Paul wanted to continue. He said there were some things that were still lacking in their faith, and he wanted to get into the meat of it. And so in verse 4, Paul gets right into it, and he says, listen, you've been living to please God, but this is what I want you to do. It is God's will, God's will, that you should be sanctified. It means to be set apart. He wants you to be holy. God desires people that are consecrated and purified for him. That is his will for our life. We as the church, the church, the the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones. So God desires that, that he's calling people out of the world to himself to say, I want you to follow me. I want you to look different than the world around us. So many people say, what is God's will for my life? Is it a job? Is it a spouse? Is it a college? What's God's will for my life? And I think he makes it very clear. God's will is, I want you to be set apart, to be unique. And the first thing that Paul says is going to make you look different, to make you distinct from all those around you. He says, I want you to avoid sexual immorality. The word is pornaya. We get the word pornography from it. Pornaya means to abstain from any and all sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what it means. God says, I want you to be holy. I'm drawing you out of the world to be a people just for me. And I want you, they will know that you're mine when you're willing to forsake your passions and your lusts and reserve them for my set will and purposes. God makes it very clear. So one of the first things that we see in this passage is that God is pleased in our pursuit of holiness. Our pursuit of holiness. You see, the message came to this church of Thessalonica very clearly. It came in power, not just in word. They were growing. The word came to them. It was transforming their attitudes and their behaviors. And Paul encouraged to see that more and more. But it wasn't a one-time thing. See, this idea of purity of mind and body, it's not about perfection. It's about perseverance. It's the pursuit of that honors God. It's the striving to model your life after the example of Christ. Paul didn't expect them to get it perfect from the start. In fact, that word sanctification is a process. It is a lifetime of becoming more and more like Christ. Often for us, the Christian life is really two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. It's, it's drawing closer to God each step of the way. That's what it means to become a Christian in that journey. It's the It's the perseverance that honors God. In fact, it's recognizing that that I'm walking into who he created me to be and to never let a detour become a full-blown derailment. Do you know the difference? See, when you're on a journey and you're trying to go from A to B and all of a sudden you're driving down the road and you hit a detour, it's an obstacle. 
It's an inconvenience. You've got to take the long way around, but you're still ultimately getting to your intended destination. It just takes you a little bit longer. But anyone who's seen a, a derailment, a derailment is a disaster. If you've ever seen an aerial photo of a train wreck, it's carnage. Cars are blown all across the road. The track is destroyed. The, everything around it is just total chaos and demolished. See, a derailment never gets you to your intended destination. And I think in our lives, we often treat sin in one of those two ways. You either recognize that, that this journey of sanctification is a process, and that when I mess up, when I sin, man, it's a detour. It's my opportunity to, to repent, to ask God, hey, forgive me for what I've done. Get me back on the track. Help me to go in the right direction. Or you can see your sin as a derailment. You can get stuck in guilt and shame and regret, and it can paralyze you from ever realizing your potential and who God created you to be. The Christian life is not about your perfection. It's about humbly walking with him, repenting when you've messed up, and trusting in the perfect man of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. And that's how we got to look at it. Now, make no mistake, as we look at this passage and many others in Scripture, God makes it very clear his will for human sexuality. You see, from the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis, it says God is the one who created them, male and female. And he called this creation very good. It, Jesus said, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his spouse, and the two shall become one flesh. God created sex for procreation, for pleasure, and for union between a man and woman with no ambiguity. There's no other option. There is no other way that that was supposed to work. It's the context is the key. You see, sex is like a fire. You take a fire, put it in a fireplace, and it provides warmth, security, and comfort for the whole home. But you take that fire out of the fireplace, put it in the middle of the living room, you burn the whole house down. See, a good thing in the wrong context is no longer a good thing. And that's how... That works. You know, and for a long time, our culture supported this belief. Our culture supported traditional marriage. It supported the idea that sex was supposed to be reserved for the context of marriage, but that certainly isn't the world we live in today. You see, our culture today, we live in a culture when truth has been toppled by tolerance. Americans today believe that the greatest good is our freedom is to do whatever, with whomever, whenever, with no restraint. Here's some stats for you. 65% of Americans, of adults in America, believe that it's a good idea to cohabitate before marriage. 65%. 40% of practicing Christians think the same. So 40% of practicing Christians, that, that mindset, that thinking has infiltrated the church to where they think that's a good idea to cohabitate before marriage. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. It means to run. Get away from it as far as you can. But oftentimes, even in the church, we're kind of just kind of dancing around the edges of it, skirting with disaster. Now, I know it's a little awkward, but we're going to get right to it. How about we talk about pornography? Today in the church, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to viewing pornography at least once a month, if not more. And the impact of on our youth is far, far greater the average age of exposure to internet pornography is somewhere between 9 and 11 years old. 9 and 11. And the largest consumer of internet pornography is youth ages 12 to 17 years old. 
pastor and apologist, author and apologist Josh McDowell says this. He says, quote, pornography is probably the greatest, the greatest threat to the church in its existence. You see, because it warps our understanding of healthy, normal relationships. It turns people into objects, victimizes women and children. It increases divorce rates. It undermines intimacy, both present and future. And the biggest thing for the church is that it stunts and disrupts our faith. Scripture says there is no sin like sexual sin and its ability to destroy a person, a family, and a community. There's nothing like it. And the problem is that while our our culture is so loud and proud about their agenda, the church often is silent. Often, when it comes to some of the major issues of our day, we've been kind of silent because those within the church have been kind of ladled with some scandal and hypocrisy and immorality and other issues like that. Now, going all the way back to the Old Testament, we know that that sex is not something that is just a learned behavior. If If you look at verse 4 of our passage, it says that each of you should learn to control your own body and live in a way that is holy and honorable. you got to learn it, which means self-control is not natural. It's something that's learned. Not to learn something, you need a teacher. And God has placed this responsibility on parents, upon the church, and actually taken it upon himself also. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, God made it very clear to parents. He said, parents, these are the commandments I give you. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them while you're at home, while you're on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Parents, you are the leading voice in your child's life when it comes to their decisions. Do not abdicate that authority to the culture, to the educational systems, to the internet, to their friends, to anything like that. They need to hear about matters of faith and life from you first. Now, the church also has responsibility. Leaders are told on how they are to model temperance and respect and self-control, how they are to live their lives above approach, and they are to instruct people on how to live in order to please God. But the beautiful thing is God takes this burden upon himself also. He takes it upon himself. If you look at Titus 2.12, it says this, The grace of God, the Spirit of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the beauty of this is that what God calls you to do, what he calls you to do, he equips you to do also. God doesn't say, be holy and figure it out. Be holy and just get it right on your own. No, he actually comes alongside you and strengthens you along the way. People often say, I can't come to God because I'm a mess. My life is all messed up. I need to clean myself up first. God says the opposite. He goes, you can't clean yourself up. Quit trying. Come to me as you are, and I will empower you. I will help you. I will equip you to become the person that I created you to be. That's the beauty of this whole thing. Now, something in Scripture I'm, I'm intrigued about is the idea, this, the idea of being a servant of Christ. You see Peter, Paul, James, Jude, several people talking about being a servant of Christ. But really, servant's not the right word. You see, in the Bible, the word servant is often, is, should rightly be translated in this place, doulos. And doulos means a bond servant or a bond slave. So let me tell you how this works. In Old Testament days, sometimes like a poverty-stricken Jew might, might have to sell himself into service to another Jew because of a debt he could not pay. He was called a debt slave. And so the, 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 he sold himself for a period of no more than six years. And for six years, you have to serve his master to pay off this debt. 
And at the end of six years, he was to be released, free and clear. The debt has been paid. But occasionally, this Jew may find out that his master is a caring and a kind and a loving person, one who is trustworthy, one who has been gentle, one who has been honest with him. And at the end of that six years, this debt slave may now approach his master and say, you've been good to me. I want to now pledge my life to you. I want to now no longer be your debt slave. I want to be your bond slave. I want to bond my own life to yours. A bond slave is someone who pledges his life to another with no regard for his own will. A bond slave is someone who says, I no longer want to serve you for six years. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. I am bound to you until death. My will is no longer mine. I am all about now your will. I belong to you. And this decision is irreversible. Now the Bible says when Jesus came, he took on the form of a servant, right? And that same word, doulos, he's a bond slave. Jesus came and said, I come to do the will of my father. I love my father and I will do his will so that I may save people from the bondage of sin. Jesus came perfectly to serve God the Father in that way. It's why he could sit in the garden of Gethsemane and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Now, I wonder how many of us, when it comes to our Christian walk in our life, are living more as debt slaves than bond slaves. See, a debt slave is temporary. It's involuntary. Really, it's a limited commitment, but it's out of obligation rather than love. A debt slave doesn't really yet trust in the goodness and love of his, of his master. Putting it in today's context, a debt slave may be like this. God, I'm willing to serve you when it's convenient. I'll attend church periodically. I'll even help the poor when my schedule permits. I might go on a missions trip. I'll even tip the offering plate. It's limited commitment. But a bond slave is different. Because a debt slave may say, God, when it comes to this whole sexuality thing, when it comes to the sanctification thing, yeah, you, you can't have that. The idea of like sex outside of marriage, I'm only, I'm only this, I'm not going to go that far with you on this. But a bond slave says, God, I trust you with everything. Not my will, but yours be done. I choose to honor you in body and spirit no matter the cost. In marriage or singleness, whatever you have planned, I will follow wherever you lead. That's the difference. Now, for me in my life, in March 2003, I was in a unique place. I was working as a project manager for Ryan Homes. I left my position with that company, and I was in a time of searching. I was, in a time, I was scared, not sure what would happen. God closed the door, and a new one had not opened. And it was during this period, though, that I was willing, honestly willing to follow God wherever he lead. I said, God, to the ends of the earth, if need be, I want to be your bond slave. And it was during this time that Deb Ott, uh, wife of Jared, actually approached me. She was working with Silver Ring Thing at the time. And she said, hey, we'd like for you to come with us on a trip up to Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, to do a 10-day camp up there for a student camp. And I thought, why me? I thought, you've got to be crazy. What does a project manager for a home building company have anything to do with talking to kids about not having sex? This is not the logical career path step. None of this is working out. But I'm the bond slave. I'm going to go wherever you would follow. And when I went up there and I saw the Silver Ring Thing event, I saw something that forever changed my life. I knew it was where God wanted me to be. I experienced a dynamic event that radically inspires and challenges students to embrace a lifestyle that is so contrary to popular culture. I saw students who were confused and broken come in the door and find hope, restoration, and forgiveness. I saw the power of the gospel to transform lives, to bring light into dark places 
to bring dead hearts to life. And it was actually at this same camp where I got to meet Denny Patton, who's the founder of Silver Ring Thing. Denny took alongside me and saw in this New England kid something that I never saw in myself. He helped me, a guy with no plans forever for ministry, to fall in love with the power of the cross to change lives. Denny helped me understand that ministry is the most exciting place to give your life when you know that what you do impacts eternity. He's been a role model, an example. He has inspired me. He has encouraged me. Denny has discipled me and trained me, and he has challenged me. Always take the higher road. Never burn bridges. Trust. Remain calm under fire, trusting that God is sovereign no matter what's going on. I've seen this over 13 years, and I've seen it more recently in the last couple years. As many of you probably know, he just went through a battle with cancer. Never did Denny say, why me? Never did he say, why God? He just trusted. God's in control. I'm going to fix my eyes upon him. One of the greatest things Denny taught me is that God does not call us to success, but obedience. We're not responsible for the outcome of our efforts. We're responsible to be faithful and obedient, to do the good work and trust God with the results. So in 2003, Denny opened that door that wasn't open to me before, gave me the opportunity to get involved in the Silver Rain thing. And as you've seen on this video, God has done some amazing things during that time. More than 1,200 events worldwide, all over the United States, the UK, Brazil, South Africa. 650,000 students who've heard this message. A quarter of a million that have committed their lives to purity and 125,000 plus that have dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ. It has been amazing to see lives restored, to see marriages renewed, to see the hope and joy of people who thought there was no more hope now find their identity rooted in Jesus Christ. It was my honor, it's been my honor in November to be elected to be the president of this organization and to fulfill Denny's uh, footsteps. And uh, before, before I go, I just want to call up quickly, Denny and Amy here quickly. Um, I have an opportunity. I just want to present them with something very briefly, um, just to commemorate them and the legacy that they lead. Um, we have a plaque here. This plaque is uh, both to Denny and Amy, who started this ministry, who, who really gave their lives to it. And it says, in a great, it says, from Silver Ring Thing, in grateful appreciation for your visionary leadership and dedication to the mission of Silver Ring Thing, Denny and Amy Patton, thank you for your faithful obedience and untiring commitment to the gospel, January 8th, 2017. So we want to give this to both Denny and Amy, and they love you guys. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we will. So I have big shoes to fill, literally. Denny's taller than me. Um, but I trust in God's sovereign grace. You know, I believe that the next two decades of ministry will eclipse the former. I believe that our culture grapples with these issues of, of gender identity, with sexual orientation, with brokenness, with immorality, that our message is both right and true, and it's needed more and more. I believe that my desire is to please God. And because of that, I need not fear what any man or any critic may say. Similar to how Paul concludes this letter. Paul concludes this letter. He says, listen, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 
Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. In other words, the battle is the Lord's. We're just the messengers. There may be some people here today who want to join us in this message, who want to join on this great mission we have to give of their talent, treasure, influence, to advance the gospel and reach a culture that is so broken and is so needed. We can act boldly, similar to what Paul said. We act in the authority of Jesus Christ, knowing that if God is for us, who could be against us? And so the real question today as we close is, are you a debt slave? Are you a bond slave? Maybe you haven't experienced victory over sin or freedom in Christ because you're still holding back. Maybe you're unwilling to let go of some areas because you're not sure if you can trust God yet, if he is trustworthy. I can assure you that when you confess your sins, when you come to Christ, when you ask for forgiveness and ask him to be the Lord and Savior of your life, everything, everything changes. The old is gone. The new has come. You're the new creation. You have life to the fullest. You become indwelled by the Holy Spirit so that you can do works and bring great pleasure to our great God, the one who both formed you and sustained you. There is no better place that you could be, no better place than bond slave to the sovereign maker of the universe, the one true king who loves you and gave his life for you. Indeed, there is no better place you could be. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, your word today, Father, is received with ears ready to hear, God, that we would be willing to walk in humble obedience to your word, that we know it's not man's word, God, but it is your word and your authority. You desire us, Father, to live pure and to honor you. You desire, God, to see a people who are called out, who are distinct, to shine their light before men so that people will praise you in heaven, God. So I ask, God, that you would equip all of us to do that. And, Father, I also pray that those who are here today, maybe who are far from you, who haven't committed fully to you, or still have never even made that first commitment, God, yielding their lives to you, that even where they're seated today, they say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for walking far from you, for ignoring you. I repent of my sins. I ask that you would come into my life, that you would equip me, enable me to walk with you, to please you in all that I do. God, give me this new life through Jesus Christ. Amen.